Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll do a roundup of topics, including new U.S. Census Bureau uh, population projections, the latest inflation numbers, and other economic news, the road ahead on fiscal year 2024 appropriations, after passage of a new continuing resolution, and a case now before the U.S. Supreme Court, Moore versus United States, that could have a big effect on federal government revenues. Joining me for the conversation are Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. Tori and Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Hey, Bob. And happy Thanksgiving week to you both. Same to you, uh, sir. Yeah, and, and to all of our listeners. Uh, Steve, you've been uh, looking at uh, some new population growth numbers from the U.S. Census Bureau, and you found some uh, interesting divergence from similar projections by the Congressional Budget Office and the Social Security Administration, uh, where you used to work. So, uh, and you recently had an issue brief on the subject posted on our uh, website, ConcordCoalition.org. Kind of briefly, what did you find? And then we'll talk about what does it mean. But <laughs> what are the divergence in these, these three entities projecting our population? Well, I mean, interestingly, uh, I think for the first time ever, although uh, don't, don't quote me on that, uh, the Census Bureau, which is the, the agency that is sort of anointed by Congress to conduct what's what's known as the decennial census. So every 10 years, they go out and count the U.S. population, and that's used for congressional uh, apportionment. But in addition to their job of actually counting the population, they also have you know demographers and 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 folks over there, and they make projections of the of the U.S. population. And so you know, according to the latest estimates, the the current U.S. population is about three hundred and thirty five million. But what the Census Bureau is projecting will happen is that over the you know the course of the of this century through through the year 2100 that the US population will continue to grow and reach almost 370 million in the year 2080 and then after that the last two decades of the century uh, essentially the population will begin to decline and so by the end of the century the population will be about 366 million which is higher than today but less than the peak that it will will achieve, you know, in, in the uh, in the twenty. So, you know, here you have a government agency, basically predicting that the U.S. population will reach a peak and begin to decline. Um, however, as you did in the in the introduction here, uh, the Census Bureau isn't the only agency that makes uh, predictions. We also have the Congressional Budget Office and the Social Security Administration, and they both also have projected the population through the end of the century. And unlike the Census Bureau, uh, they are projecting that the population will continue to grow throughout throughout the century. The Congressional Budget Office says 
the population will reach a little over 400 million by the end of the century. And uh, the the Social Security Administration's the population will reach 400 and uh, a little over 475 million. So the population will, will grow much more. And so here you have these three agencies uh, making very different predictions about the, what the U.S. population will look like through through the end of the century, and you know those differences come about because of their their uh, making different assumptions. Obviously, the population growth is a function of the number of births, the number of deaths, and the rate of immigration, net net immigration, people coming entering the country and leaving the country, and you know how you predict or project what those three variables will do determines what the population will be, whether the population will rise or fall. And looking so, just just on that point, looking at a, sure. a figure in your issue brief on the different assumptions, you, you break it down. And it seems to me that there's a, a big divergence in the fertility rate assumptions and, and also in, in net immigration. The uh, Census Bureau is projecting fewer but really, the Census Bureau, the Census Bureau is really lower uh, on the uh, fertility rate, much, much lower than SSA and CBO is somewhere in between. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you know, as I noted, there's three factors that really make a difference, fertility, life expectancy and immigration. And the Census Bureau is lower on all of those factors. Well, I, actually, their, their life expectancy is pretty close to, to CBOs, but, but in terms of immigration and, and fertility, they are much lower. And, you know, you have to make, again, you're making projections, you have to make an assumption. And, and of course, what we've seen uh, back in 2007, the U.S. fertility rate peaked at, at about 2.1. And what that means is that on average, over the lifetime of, you know, your typical uh, female, they will have 2.1 children over their lifetime. So from the time, you know, if you track from age, you know, 15 up to age 50, and you add up all the births that women have on average over their life, you get about 2.1. And that's uh, what was actually happening back in 2007. But what we've seen since then is that the birth rate has continually fallen. And we are now at about, actually, the latest numbers for the first quarter of this year was 1.66. So that means instead of having 2.1 births, you're having 1.6 or what just well, you know, almost 1.7. And of course, what's known as replacement rate is how many births do you need to replace the population? And, and that is roughly the 2.1 number, which we were where we were. But we've seen fertility rates continually fall, you know, basically over the last two decades. The Census Bureau, perhaps pessimistically, assumes that that trend, the declining trend, will continue and that we'll go from the current 1.66 down to 1.5. On the other hand, CBO says, no, no, you know, that that's probably too pessimistic. The 1.66 is we're going to see some recovery from that, but it won't be a full recovery. Instead of being 1.6, 1.7, uh, we're going to go back up to, to 1.8. Uh, actually, they say 175, but it round, you know, rounding off to 1.8. On the other hand, the Social Security Administration says, oh, no, no, uh, we're, we're going to see a bigger recovery. And instead of uh, the 1.5 or the 1.8, we're going to actually get back up to two, two births per, per woman. Um, and so as a result, that, you know, you wouldn't think 1.5, 1.8, 2.0, that doesn't sound like big numbers. But when you're talking about fertility rates and you're talking about, you know, a period of, of 70 or 80 years, 
that can make a big difference in your population projections, and which is why you get the differences that you you know that I noted earlier: the population peaking and declining, the population growing some, or the population growing growing significantly. So yeah, clearly birth rates are the biggest factor driving uh, the differences in the population projections. Tori, um, you've had two children. I'm wondering where the point one comes from. If we have to average two point one, I'm not sure. Well, you know, some people have That's one, some famous, have two, right? some have three. Yeah, yeah. nobody has point but, one. That's yeah. An well, right. anyway. Oh, it's an average. But I, I, I do have a question though for Steve. When you look at these these three factors that determine population, you talked about births, deaths, and immigration. Immigration is the one place where federal policy. Um, can have an impact. I mean, the government can't really affect fertility rates, really, and certainly can't affect death rates, but federal policy can affect immigration and the rate of immigration. I'm wondering, is there any significant difference among these three entities, what they assume about immigration? And what do you think that means with respect to the conversations that we're having right now in the United States about immigration policy, whether we should have more immigration, less immigration. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, clearly there are some differences, but again, they're not, they don't appear to be huge. I mean, the Census Bureau assumes that going forward, that net immigration, which is people entering the country minus the people leaving the country in a given year, that's going to be about 0.9 or or 900,000 or 0.9 million. So just slightly less than a million. Uh, both CBO and the Social Security Administration assume that the net immigration will be about 1.2 million or about 300,000 per year higher. And those include both, you know, legal immigration, people that we issue green cards to, visas, they come here legally, uh, as well as people who are entering the country illegally. And so these are all sort of very loose estimates of the net flows of immigrants, legal and illegal, And it's basically based on historical trends. And I mean, you know, the difficulty, you know, as you point out, obviously, it's easy to add to the US population if we simply say, look, we're going to open up our borders and anybody who wants to come can come to the country. Now, politically, that'll never happen. And so, you know, where you end up is to say, okay, how do we design a, a policy that encourages the right number of people and the right types of people in terms of skills and education and abilities and you know the ability to assimilate you know that that's a it's a it's a much more difficult problem uh to know particularly when you're projecting in the future i mean part of the reason people come here is because they don't like where they are and they assume that it's going to be a, a better life here and that over the next 80 years that could change i mean it's, as the other countries around the world become more prosperous, people may have a, more of an incentive to stay home and less of an incentive to come here. So it's it's really hard. So yeah, it's really it, hard it, to know. But it sounds like getting the right immigration policy and, and getting it enacted could be important. Sure, it could make a difference. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking about recent developments with the economy and on Capitol Hill. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking about recent developments on Capitol Hill and uh, what's going on with the economy. But Steve, first we were we were picking. I just want to pick back up on the conversation we were having with you before the break about new 
population projections from the U.S. Census Bureau and uh, how they diverge from some projections made by the Congressional Budget Office and SSA. So we talked about what some of those differences were. Now I want to ask you, what what are the implications? I mean, uh, uh, the, the Census Bureau seems to be considerably more pessimistic in terms of uh, growth of the U.S. population. And you wrote in a recent issue, Brees, that that has potential very serious consequences for the federal budget. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, how big the population is, you know, people think about, you know, population growth and can we support all the people in the country and what impact does that have on the environment? And so, you know, the total population numbers are significant from the overall economy and environmental perspective. But, you know, from the perspective of the federal budget, perhaps what matters more is not the size of the population, but the composition. And when I when I when I refer to composition, I mean the age structure. And the way to think about that, you know, as most most folks know, Social Security and Medicare, Medicare hospital insurance, part part A, um, they're funded by a payroll tax. So essentially you have workers who are paying a tax and then the money from the tax is used to pay the benefits of Social Security and Medicare. So obviously in a situation like that, the number of workers relative to the number of retirees makes a big difference because the more workers you have for each retiree, you can provide higher benefits or have lower taxes to provide a given level of benefits. So when you look at the changes in the population that are projected, if if you start today in in the year 2023, there's roughly 3.3 persons between the age of 20 and 64 for every person 65 and over. So, you know, not everybody is working. If you're 20 to 64, you know, you may be raising your kids or going to school or you're disabled or unemployed. But, you know, on average, the 20 to 64 year olds represent the working population. If you're 65 and over, admittedly, some people who are 65 and over continue to work. So it changes the math a little, but on in general, 65 and over people are retired or, or approaching retirement or maybe working part-time. So if you think about the ratio of, of the working age population to the retirement age population, today we're at 3.3. So let's suppose you impose a payroll tax on all the workers and you pay for Social Security and Medicare. So today the, the system is fully funded, just hypothetically. What happens under the projections of census or CBO or SSA is as that as the population ages, fertility rates decline, um, life expectancies continue to go up, that ratio changes. So under, under Social Security, the ratio goes from 3.3 to 2.3. Under CBO, it goes to 2.0, and under census, it goes to 1.8. Now, again, these don't sound like big numbers. We're talking about fractions of a percent. But in terms of financing, the system that you could finance 100% at a 3.3% population ratio, under the 2.3, you could only pay 70% of benefits. You'd have a 30% cut. Under the 2.0, you could fund 60% of benefits, or you'd have a 40% cut. And under the 1.8, you could fund 55% of the benefits, with it, which is 45% cut. So in other words, the changes in the age structure of the population means that a payroll tax funded system like Social Security and Medicare becomes increasingly expensive and unaffordable at a given tax rate when you have a large population and then that population declines, or I shouldn't say a large population, but the ratio declines, the ratio of workers to retirees. So, you know, 
how these projections turn out, who who proves to be right, census or CBO or SSA or somewhere in between, is going to have a big potential impact on the cost of supporting programs like Social Security and Medicare going forward. And that's to say nothing about the potential effects on the economy overall. And uh, you even point out it, it has implications for the environment. Sure. But what you were looking at is just, you know, what, what are the implications for funding Medicare and Social Security? Yeah, from a budgetary perspective. Yeah, right. from a budgetary perspective. We won't know until we get there. But I mean, <laughs> it seems to me that prudent planning would be uh, appropriate in, in that regard. Well, we're talking about uh, births and deaths. Um, and as we all know, the two things that are inevitable are death and taxes. And that's kind of an odd segue to Tori <laughs> to talk about <laughs> taxes. <laughs> I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, as we're approaching the end of the year, I guess another inevitable thing is that uh, Congress starts thinking about things they can stuff into end of the year packages like uh, tax cuts or, or new spending. And you've been looking at uh, some of the things that might be on the table. So tell us what's uh, brewing in the tax world. Yeah, I, I really think that tax policy is going to be the sleeper issue of the end of this year. You know, so far this year, we've been so focused on House Republicans and, and the race for speaker. We've been focused on getting the government funded, you know, trying to avoid shutdowns, uh, you know, raising the debt limit or suspending the debt limit. Uh, we really haven't had time to have a conversation about tax policy, um, but there are definitely some some forces that are moving underneath the surface that make me wonder if, you know, November, December, we're going to see a late breaking tax bill or a tax title that travels along with some must pass legislation. I mean, I realize that you know, we've funded the government into next year, uh, but there are other must pass pieces of legislation that Congress has to deal with. They have to pass a national defense reauthorization bill. They have to pass uh, FAA, Federal Aviation Administration reauthorization. They have some FISA authorities, you know, surveillance authorities that they need to, to pass. And those could all be vehicles for new tax policy. And there are several different <laughs> lanes where tax policy could be a consideration this year. Um, the first is just an end of year tax bill. Uh, we've got House Republicans that want to move a $50 billion package that would provide businesses with some temporary tax cuts. They, uh, there are some provisions that were used as pay-fors in the Trump tax cuts from 2017. If you recall, part of that legislation reduced the corporate income tax from 35% to 21%. And they also made some changes to business tax law uh, to help pay for that tax cut. How some House Republicans want to undo some of those pay-fors. Uh, they want to provide greater flexibility to expense uh, net interest on loans for businesses. They want to extend uh, bonus depreciation. They want to restore some immediate uh, expensing deductions for research and development tax expenders. Tax expenditures, Democrats said, well, that's fine and dandy, but if you're going to do that, our ask is uh, we want an equivalent dollar for dollar expansion in the COVID era uh, child tax credit. Uh, if you recall, uh, one of the things Democrats did in 2021 is significantly expand the child tax credit. Um, you know, they, they made the tax, uh, the, the tax credit more generous. 
they made more people eligible for it. They made more kids eligible for it. And they made it fully refundable. And they made it fully refundable over the course of the year rather than just waiting for you know one big refund at the end of the year. So you put all that together and you're looking at potentially a $100 billion tax bill at the end of the year that won't be offset. Because And another, we'll probably see some smaller tax provisions that get added to that, um, dealing with uh, natural disasters and, and compensation for, for natural disasters to make sure that that's not included in taxable income. If there is a tax title that moves at the end of the year, we might see some movement on SALT, the state and local tax deduction that riles uh, you know, people in, in, in New England, high tax states. You know, they, they got a, a, a big tax increase. Uh, with the Trump tax cuts, and they've been trying to roll that back ever since. So, you know, you, you, you lump those things together and, and, yeah, tax policy suddenly takes on a new urgency at the end of the year. And then you add on to that, um, there's actually a Supreme Court case that's moving uh, with respect to tax policy. Normally, the Supreme Court doesn't get involved in, in tax policy. They leave that up to the U.S. tax court. But we've got this, this case moving now, uh, uh, Moore versus the United States, that actually has to do with a, a provision within the, the 2017 Trump tax cuts as well. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how tax policy dominates, does or does not dominate the conversation in the fall. I, I think it probably will. Um, and the thing that strikes me about this as you were going through that is that most of this has to do with undoing things that were done to pay for other stuff that was done. So the lesson seems to be, if you're looking at this, is that Congress will, when they do enact offsets and they don't always do it, you have to look and see how long are those offsets going to remain in place. And mm -hmm. this looks like a kind of a, a, a major undo the offsets package <laughs> mm -hmm. that's looming. And, and, um, in some ways, we'll we'll have to say more about that uh, Moore versus United States case, which will I guess the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments on that in early December. Yeah, December fifth is when yeah. they're supposed to. Hear so or, or we're gonna, well, we're going to hear arguments on it in the next segment, so you don't have to wait <laughs> that long. Um, but you do have to wait for uh, these short messages, and then we'll come back uh, to talk more about tax policy. This is. Facing the Future, and I'm talking with uh, Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking about some recent developments uh, on Capitol Hill and things that might be coming up on Capitol Hill. And when we left off, Tori was talking about a Supreme Court case called Moore versus United States, which tax experts are looking at and saying, hmm, this, depending on how it's decided, this could have some big implications for tax policy. So there's kind of a, the, the narrow facts of this case and what could be the broader implications. Case is um, scheduled for argument December 5th before the Supreme Court. Steve, you've been getting an advance, you, you're not a special advance, you've been looking, as anybody can do online, at the briefs, and there are a ton of amicus briefs, aside from the official briefs that have been filed in this case. 
So can you give us sort of a, a, a broad perspective on what this case is about? It is about something called the Mandatory Repatriation Tax, MRT, that was passed in what's commonly called the Trump tax cuts in 2017. It was passed as an offset right. to raise some revenue to offset other provisions of the bill that were uh, that were going to be revenue losers. And it has to do with interpreting the 16th Amendment to the Constitution. And if I can read just from the government's brief on the case, how they define the, the question that they say is the question to be defined is whether this tax, the mandatory repatriation tax, is a, quote, tax on incomes from whatever source derived, which is uh, how income is defined in the U.S. Constitution within the meaning of the 16th Amendment. So it's about the 16th Amendment, the meaning of income, and this particular provision of the Trump tax cuts. Take it from there. <laughs> yeah. So, so let me. The, the the case is called Moore versus U.S. and and the the Moors are a, a couple who uh, invested in a company in India, and the uh, the the company basically um, they they invested forty thousand dollars back in the early two thousands, and they um, acquired a thirteen percent share of this company, and the company essentially. Uh, provides, I guess, grants or loans to farmers in, in India to acquire tools and equipment to, to, to engage in agriculture. Um, and so it's a, you know, a sort of a, a targeted program to help farmers in, in India. And under current tax law, uh, this, this arrangement was what was called a uh, controlled foreign corporation, which means that the the business was a corporation in India, which because the the corporation is in India, it's not normally subject to U.S. tax law. However, because it is a controlled foreign corporation, what that means is that the shareholders who are U.S. citizens own fifty percent or more of the corporation. And so we have in our law that essentially says that if U.S. citizens invest in foreign corporations and the U.S. investors control 50% and you're a large investor, which means 10% or more, that when that corporation earns income, the income, rather than being taxed under the U.S. corporate tax, because it's not a U.S. corporation, we're going to deem that that income earned by the foreign corporation is really income to the individual. But there's some catches here. And so the way that it works is what kind of income is it? And there's a part of the tax law called uh, subchapter F, which says that certain types of passive investment income hold, held by the foreign corporation is taxable immediately. So in other words, if you're an investor and your foreign corporation has got lots of passive income, interest dividends, that sort of thing, you're going to pay taxes on it currently just as if you're it was a U.S. corporation or you were a U.S. citizen receiving that income. But most businesses and in this business in particular, it would earn income, but rather than it being passive income that it held in some sort of portfolio, which was taxable to the individual, the business simply reinvested the earnings back into its business. So it made more loans and grants to farmers in India. So over the years in which the Moors had an investment, the company would earn an income, but it would take that earned income and reinvest it. 
And so under current tax law, that earned income that was rolled over and reinvested, uh, that's what's called deferred income, and it's not currently taxable. Now, in theory, when a company reinvests its income, it becomes more valuable, more profitable. So that should show up as an increase in the value of the stock held by the Moors. And were they to sell the stock, that would be a capital gain. They'd pay taxes on that. Alternatively, if the company decided that it was going to close shop and sell off its assets and pay off its investors, that would be income that would be taxed to the Moors. So at the time they made the investment, they were following the law as it existed back in the year 2000. And they were deferring tax and they assumed that were they to ever sell their shares, they would pay taxes on it. Were they ever to be paid dividends, they'd pay taxes on it. Were the company to be closed and liquidated, they would pay taxes on it. But as long as the company kept rolling over its profits and reinvesting it back in the business, there was no tax. There was no immediate tax bill to be paid by the Moors because they were not receiving the income. The income was earned by the company reinvested by the company, and the Moors were simply deferring that investment by not selling their stock or the company not being liquidated. So what happened is Congress came along and said, we're going to change international tax law, and we're going to change how we tax foreign income. And one of the things that we're going to do in the case of the Moors is we're going to go back to 1986. Now, obviously, the 86 is prior to the Moors investment, but it includes the Moors investment since it began in the 2000s. And we're going to deem all of the income earned by any company that's a foreign controlled corporation from 1986 to the present. We're going to add up all those years of income and we're going to deem that the Moors received that income and they're going to have to, they can have some, some offsets and then there's a lower preferential rate. But essentially, we're going to tax the Moors on this deemed accumulated previous earnings. And what the Moors are basically arguing is, look, that's not income. We never received that income. We we followed the rules of existing tax law. We didn't receive any income. That income is no longer available. You're talking about going back into time, you know, 30, 40 years. The income is all gone. And yet you're now going to say that we somehow received that income and, and you're going to pay tax. We're going to have to pay taxes on that income. And they're saying, well, gee, that's not fair. And they, of course, went to the court. The, the lower courts have said, nope, nope, you're, you're wrong. This is your income. You're going to pay taxes on it. And of course, they then appealed and they're now before the Supreme Court. And I mean, the, 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 all of the controversy around this is sort of some of the opponents are saying, well, if, if this, is, this case is found in favor of the government, what that means is that you're not really taxing the Moors on their income because they don't have any income. You're taxing them on their property, the ownership of, of these shares of stock. And that's a property tax or a direct tax in the terms of the Constitution. And what the Constitution requires for a direct tax on property is it has to be apportioned throughout the country based on per capita. And therefore, it's violating you know, the, 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 the Constitution. The other side is saying, well, no, no, no. If, if you're saying that this isn't income, we can't impute income that's earned by one entity over to these individual investors. And if we can't do that, well, we do that all over the tax code. There are all kinds of provisions in the current tax law that essentially says income earned by a corporation is taxable to the individual. And if you can't do that, it'll up in the tax code and we'll, 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 you know, we'll lose trillions of dollars in revenue. So you have both sides of the argument saying, you know, this is an unprecedented 
change in tax law. It's a it's a it's an unapportioned direct property tax, and that's unconstitutional. The other side is saying, well, no, this is you know an attack on the income of the entire structure of the income tax system, and you're going to blow up the tax code. And so both sides are sort of saying, you know, this is this could be depending on how it's decided, the end of the world. And I guess, you know, in my reading of all the briefs is that, yeah, there are all these issues involved if you want to make them involved, but you could narrow this case down and look at it much more narrowly and more focused, and you could decide the case and not have all of these broader implications. And I, I think the way you might do that is to look at the, the issue or the problem of it being retroactive. Well, we'll get into that in more depth in the, in the next segment but that that was uh, quite a tour de force on the uh, the background of the uh, of the Moore case as you say the thing that everybody is holding their breath on on the tax policy is how broadly the court wishes to uh, address the issues now generally speaking appellate courts are uh, inclined to decide the case on the most narrow basis that they need to dispose of the issue on the other hand, as, as we've seen, sometimes courts take the opportunity to make a, a much broader statement. Some are concerned that if we, uh, you know, if the if the tax base is eroded by a decision in this case, it would be a, an, an unfortunate circumstance where <laughs> at a particular time when uh, the budget's in, in tough shape and uh, we're going to need to get revenue from uh, any source uh, that we can as, in, as well as uh, spending cuts. So anyway, uh, let's talk about further implications of this uh, and bring Tori into the conversation on the other side of this break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing tax policy. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking about uh, some tax policy and other events on Capitol Hill. We're talking about a case that's uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court and is going to be argued in early December called Moore versus United States. And it's got the tax policy wonks all abuzz about just what might happen with this case. Uh, Steve gave us an excellent rundown of what's behind it, uh, what, what's at stake in the last segment. Tori, um, uh, now to take a little bit more of a less technical point of view and, and ask some practical and maybe somewhat tinged political questions about what's <laughs> going on here with this case. Well, I, I guess... One of the things that I find curious about this is why did the Supreme Court take the case? Again, I, you know, I said in it, and when I alluded to this, I think one of our earlier segments is that the, the Supreme Court does not normally take tax cases. You know, settling tax law requires a level of expertise in tax practice that Supreme Court justices don't have. Right? Their 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 focus is on uh, constitutionality. So, uh, you know, why did they take it? They're also, you know, normally the Supreme Court takes a case because there's a split in the lower courts. There is no split in this case. You know, the, the district court and the Court of Appeals agreed with each other. The amount of money at stake in this case to the petitioners, $15,000, which is a pittance when you consider. Fifteen, one five. Yeah. One five, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. And the repatriation tax itself is actually, it's a temporary transition rule. This is not a tax that's going to exist in perpetuity. It was a one-time tax. It was imposed because, let's face it, a lot of these 
controlled foreign corporations, you know, U.S. corporations that operate abroad, you know, they were they were basically leaving their profits overseas and instead of repatriating and paying the taxes that they owed here in the United States. So, you know, it was trying to close a tax loophole. So, you know, it's, it's interesting as to why the Supreme Court took this case. You know, some people are hypothesizing that Supreme Court wants to weigh in on a wealth tax, which is something that, uh, you know, has been being considered in, in certain policy circles and, and maybe they wanted to get out ahead in front of it. Some people believe that the, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals was a little bit too expansive in their, their long language and their reasoning, and that you know maybe the Supreme Court wants to clarify. In addition to why they took the case, I'm really curious to see what the collateral damage is going to be. You know, as Steve was saying, you know, there are a number of ways that they could rule here. They could you know, rule in favor of, of the government and hold that a, a repatriation tax with all these attributes is fine and dandy and is not, has no constitutional issues. You know, they could rule in a very narrow manner and talk about just the application of the repatriation tax, or they could blow up, you know, the, the, the internal revenue code and the way we tax partnerships by saying, you know, realization is a must have event before you can consider taxing income. In other words, definition of income requires realization. So, you know, we could do, I mean, obviously the odds are something narrow but you never know with this court right (laughs) our friends over at the committee for responsible federal budget uh estimated that if if the supreme court took the narrow path it would result in uh, i think 3.5 billion dollar revenue loss uh no big deal a bigger uh more expansive decision by the court could cost up to a trillion this is you know over 10 years so we're, we're talking about great uncertainty, uh, right. which is not just about the decision, but the implications of it and, and uh, how it would be implemented. And that's why uh, tax people are, are all agog, uh, <laughs> wondering what, are, what is the fallout, uh, as you said. Steve, as you went through this, you were, well, I guess you were thinking that the, the parties may be addressing the wrong issue. And uh, you, you're more concerned with the retroactive part of this than um, the definition of income, I guess. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think there's any question. Well, there shouldn't be any question that there was a realization of income and that that income is taxable under certain conditions or circumstances. But I mean, normally the tax code works, a business earns income, it has realized income, and you then tax it. Uh, and that's the precedent for partnerships, S corporations, C corporations. And I don't think there's any question there was a realization of income, and that income is taxable under the tax code. But you know what happened in this particular case is that they're saying we're not going to look at the income that was realized in a given year and tax you that year on that income. We're going to go back, you know, 30, 40 years in the past, and we're going to add up all the income that was realized in those past years and add it all up and say, that's your income today, and we're going to tax you on it. And, you know, I think that that just, that goes beyond what is or should be permissible under the whole notion of ex post facto or due process or any of the sort of standards of, of, you know, legal uh, precedent that, you know, you, you don't, tax people for income that was earned that they didn't receive and they never had uh, that was, you know, transactions from 30 years ago. 
And, you know, if you wanted to narrow it further, you could just look at the, you know, the retroactive piece and only in the sense that it's being applied to individual investors. Um, and as you pointed out, that's the three and a half billion dollar cost over 10 years. So, you know, I mean, that that would be a much, well, uh, that would be a much narrower way to, to look at this um, as opposed to opening up all the other issues that have been raised by some of the some of the amicus brief, as well as some of the petitioner arguments. And it's interesting why the petitioners didn't pursue the retroactive claim. That was dismissed at the lower level, uh, lower court levels. But there's some Supreme Court precedents that says, certainly that suggests that if Congress goes back more than one year in terms of retroactivity, that it's that it's raising due process questions. Um, well, it, it, it could be if one wants to think that the point here is to get at a broader ruling uh, that gets at what is um, realization of, of income, um, then the retroactivity part of this isn't as important uh, to the petitioners. Bob, of the three of us here chatting, you know, you're the only one that has legal training. You know, Steve and I have not been to, to law school, do not have the benefit of letters. So I was just curious, you know, what, what do you think about this case? And what, what are sort of the things that immediately pop out and grab your attention? Uh, deemed income and retroactively deemed income strikes me as very problematic. Just just the, the concept. Now, that having been said, so I, I would think that the tax could be vulnerable on that point. That having been said, I may have a law degree, um, but I, I do not pretend to be a tax expert. And uh, this is a very, as you said, the Supreme Court doesn't often weigh into this issue because they aren't necessarily tax experts. So, um, you know, my uh, law degree might not, uh, uh, you know, give me that much of a leg up on anybody else. It might, it might even be a hindrance. Who knows? <laughs> As it often is. I, I just want to um, close with one, uh, just, just to bring up a beat a dead horse a little bit and talk about the continuing resolution that they just passed. <laughs> one, one last plug at that, just to close the loop on that. Uh, Congress avoided a shutdown once again uh, by passing a, another continuing resolution, the second one. Essentially, Speaker McCarthy, uh, Speaker, excuse me, Speaker Johnson took essentially the same deal that Speaker McCarthy took with the Democrats and uh, passed a continuing resolution that will fund government spending at current levels through uh, into next year, but at staggered uh, time frame. So some of the government is funded through uh, January 19th, and the rest of it is funded through February 2nd. So instead of having one shutdown deadline to worry about in 2024, we're going to have two. Well, actually three, because then in September, we'll have a whole new one to worry about with a new fiscal year. So the, the bottom line to me here, the salient point is that they have not resolved the key issue, which is what is the top line number for fiscal year 2024 appropriations? The House and the Senate are writing their bills at very different levels. They're either about $100 billion apart or about $200 billion apart, depending on how you count it. And uh, they have not reached an agreement, even though we thought they had reached an agreement back in May when they 
passed a bill raising the debt ceiling and agreed on appropriations levels. So until the House and the Senate agree, it's going to be very difficult for them to start negotiating permanent 2024 spending bills. Speaker Johnson has said that he will not accept another continuing resolution. His Freedom Caucus on the right side has said, and by the way, Speaker Johnson, we will not accept another CR that doesn't cut spending. And remember what happened to Kevin McCarthy. So we avoided a shutdown, but we're a long way from the finish line on 2024 appropriations. We are, however, at the finish line for facing the future this week. <laughs> I am your host, Bob Bixby. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, I want to say thank you uh, this Thanksgiving week to Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson for giving me so much help every week on this program. Uh, tune in again next week when we'll all be back with another edition of Facing the Future. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. <laughs>